American Capitalism, A History, with Lewis Hyman and Edward Baptist. Every day was a rehearsal for white supremacy, for a play that was always going on, forcing people into certain roles, forcing people to play these scripts out again and again, all in honor of white supremacy. But those scripts could be confused. Those scripts could be resisted, but they were the dominant scripts nonetheless. They were a tradition that had to be invented and then reinvented every day. Consider railroad stations, where if you were an African-American, you would enter through a separate door than existed for white people. And as you entered through the second separate door, you were still in the vast cavernous space of praying to buy a ticket. If there were any white people there, they got to be served ahead of you. And then if you managed to get to an attendant to buy your ticket, you were helped indifferently. Maybe you were even charged extra. And then you were shuttled off to a separate waiting room from the white one. W.E.B. Du Bois, recounting his experiences in southern uh, railroad stations, remarked, quote, Did you ever see a Jim Crow waiting room? Usually there is no heat in the winter, no air in summer with undisturbed loafers and train hands and broken, disreputable settees. And then there's the absolute weird part, that after all this careful segregation, as you wait for the train, you wait on the same platform, where one African-American reformer said, quote, the railroad platform seemed to baffle Southern white ingenuity. There was no way to actually make two of them. But then once you're back on the train, the racial order is restored. The Jim Crow car, where African-Americans would sit, was next to the engine with soot and filth and smoke, unclean with old seats and smelly, with no meals or terrible meals. Du Bois had only one word for the toilet, don't. And yet, this fact that African-Americans were forced into these terrible conditions, often at higher prices, was a way for white people to remark on the ways that these people would not, they'd be okay with living in such conditions. They're naturally fit for such conditions. They don't expect to have the same kind of civilized behaviors that we do or civilized spaces that we do. And so every action, even on a train, was a way to affirm the hierarchy of the white race over black people in everyday, every way situations. These differences were most apparent in the cities, but they are, of course, also in the country. But it didn't begin all at once. It wasn't something that emerged wholly in the 1880s and 1890s. It's something that slowly emerged, something that spread like a cancer from the cities out into the country. It was from the city, from urbanization, that this new Jim Crow order emerged. As a child, the white Southerner and future educational reformer, John Andrew Rice, had visited Columbia, South Carolina. And when he visited there, he noticed something new. Quote, on the main entrance to the town was the depot. And it was different from his country depot. In there, there were two doors to two waiting rooms. And on these two doors, arresting signs, white and colored. Within a decade, these signs would spread all across commercial spaces. They would not just be in train spaces, but also restaurants and theaters and shops. And as people took the trains home from the cities, they took those signs with them. They took that architecture with them, building all sets of strange doors 
unnecessary doors now if you tour them into buildings that were public spaces. But undermining all of this was the very fact that black people were now paid in cash. How could you get that cash into your business if you were discriminating against them? And the segregation created it at once a challenge for white retailers and a possibility for black business people. Segregation created a demand for black services for the mortuary and hospitals, but also in terms of middle-class black consumption. It created a possibility of defying those expectations of white people by dressing better than your social station would ordinarily afford. This is an important idea. When you think about John Henry, who we think of as the steel-driving man, we need to understand that John Henry was black and that it was based on a real worker who had built the Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad, the same one that Wells had ridden on. An early version of the ballad contains the lines, where did you get that pretty little dress, that hat you wear so fine? Got my dress from a railroad man, hat from a man in the mine. Now, it's, it's kind of scandalous, the idea that you have two men, one who works in the mine and one who's on the railroad, but both men are paid in wages. And those wages allow you to buy these goods and wear them, and thus defy expectations of white supremacist consumption. Cash was cash, and that was dangerous to the white supremacist order, because cash of white people and cash of black people had the same buying power. And so the ability of cash to undermine this Jim Crow order is ultimately leads to one of its main reasons why it comes undone in the 1960s but we're going to come back to that later. Now, there's a real contradiction here. On the one hand, you have profit motive, and on the other hand, you have white supremacy. White supremacy versus consumer capitalism. This is the core contradiction of Jim Crow capitalism. Thinking about what it would mean to actually just sell to everybody equally. Now, in this period, African Americans are not paid as well as white people. And so it's relatively easy to just give up on that share of the market. But as we come back to it over the course of the 20th century, we'll see that it's not so easy to give up on a large fraction of the population that actually earns money. Now, if we consider Jim Crow in the city, we need to also think about Jim Crow in the country as it follows those rail lines out into the country, where those country stores are. Now, those country stores were, as we've talked about before, about enforcing a certain kind of order and authority. They gave out debt to their customers. They enforced certain kinds of relationships with local plantation owners. And most importantly, after Jim Crow, they still enforced the white supremacist order. They were, did exactly the same things that happened to black customers in the city. If a white customer was in the store, then a black customer had to wait. They didn't really have the same kinds of choice over what kinds of products to buy, as they were constantly being told what to do by the store owner, who may have even charged them more than he would charge white customers. This monopoly situation that occurred in most rural communities was undone by the catalog, with first the Montgomery Wards catalog, and then the Sears catalog, suddenly African-American consumers in the country had options besides that one particular store owner. They could buy without asking permission 
This is something that's very important to realize, that when you went to the store in the 1890s, you had to actually ask the clerk for the goods off the shelf. You couldn't take them yourself. And so you could buy whatever you wanted. You could buy whatever you wanted without being interrogated about whether you should have it or not. You could buy whatever you wanted without waiting, without being watched. And you could buy it in cash, through the mail, in a truly national market, at prices you could never get otherwise. Now, the storekeepers fought back. If they controlled the mail service, as they did in many small towns, then they would refuse to sell stamps to black people. They would refuse to sell them money orders or even write purchase requests, since so many people were illiterate. This happened so frequently that part of the Sears catalog gave specific instructions to customers on how to evade their local postmasters and speak directly to the mail carrier. Quote, just give the letter and the money to the mail carrier and he will get the money order at the post office and mail it in the letter for you. Storekeepers throughout the South had celebratory bonfires of the catalogs in their town. They were willing to forsake even the purchasing by other white people in the area just to make sure that African Americans had no alternative. My favorite part about this, about how terrifying the catalog was to this white supremacist consumer order, was the rumor that both Sears and Ward were black. They were sold by mail, many critics said. Quote, these fellows could not afford to show their face as retailers. The criticism was so pronounced and so threatening to Sears' business that Sears, in turn, published photos of himself to, quote, prove that he was white. Ward offered a reward for the person who started a rumor that he was biracial. So they didn't challenge the essence of this, of this idea, the very racism of saying, well, you should not buy from a black person who has a catalog. But they did challenge the idea that they were not white to reaffirm the legitimacy of what they were doing. So the catalog was undermining to white supremacy. These, these kinds of rumors did not affect sales as much as show how intimately race and commerce and identity were connected in the countryside and how dangerous it was to the local order for consumers to have access to national markets. So at the center of this idea of white supremacy and consumer capitalism was a contradiction. This idea of how to embrace modernity and at the same time contain it. So the idea for the white supremacist order was to have black people work. This is the main idea, how to exploit their labor, how to control it, how to maintain the dignity of white labor and white work over that of black work to degrade black workers and their consumption, to visually make it impossible for black consumers to be equal in their dress and what kinds of things they consumed in places that they went, to have in all consumer spaces a constant reminder of the racial hierarchy, to make sure that that racial hierarchy appeared natural, inevitable, even as it was historically created only in the last few decades. White people could think that black people would be comfortable in such squalor, made them deserve that squalor. Now, politically, it was very straightforward. There were more white people. They could vote in the people that they wanted. But to profit from black consumption, 
white people had to sell them goods. And that is the essential contradiction, the undermining weakness of the white supremacist order within capitalism. A contradiction between, on the one hand, free wage labor, and the other hand, unfree cash consumption. For more information, go to edX.org and look for American Capitalism, A History with Lewis Hyman and Edward Baptist. Or go to facebook.com slash American Capitalism MOOC. This podcast has been brought to you by Cornell X from Cornell University. Mm-hmm.